I'd like to talk about sympathetic joy and humility tonight. Our mind, on a basic fundamental level, is not limited by the boundaries of our individual existence. The mind has no form, it has no location or substance. And yet to say what the mind actually is, in positive terms, seems quite problematic. All we can perhaps say about it is that it perceives, it experiences, or it seems to create reality, depending on how we look at it. One of the decisive properties of the mind, in most cases, is that because of ignorance, it doesn't see the nature of reality, its own nature, correctly. This not seeing, this basic ignorance, or perhaps bewilderment, tends to cause the mind to arrange itself around the imagined unit or entity within. Then this apparent center becomes the point of reference for all the relationships that go on within us. Everything that comforts this apparent center, everything that seems favorable to it, supports it, confirms it, all that's perceived as being pleasant, becomes object of attachment and desire. Similarly, all that threatens it, threatens its seeming integrity, all that is perceived as being unpleasant, becomes an object of aversion. Further, it generates jealousy or envy towards everything which it considers a possible rival in whatever domain that may be. And having the need to be confirmed as a central entity, having the need to be different, to be special, it wants to be above others, and thus occurs conceit. These five tendencies are mind states or emotions. Basic ignorance, attachment, aversion, jealousy, and conceit, which leave us no peace for a lot or most of our life. They can vary in intensity, but it's, as we know, relatively rare that they're all completely absent. But whenever they are absent, then our mind is peaceful and real life with its basic qualities of love and generosity, of joy, of gratefulness, of simplicity, of humility. Those qualities 
I'd like to talk about tonight. When the mind is free of aversion, hatred, and violence, it is loving, kind, and compassionate. When it's free of attachment, it is generous, it lets go. And I'd like to look at jealousy and envy and that conceit and the positive qualities that are there when the mind is free of this jealousy and conceit. And let's first look at jealousy and with it envy. And in their absence, sympathetic joy and gratefulness. Jealousy seems to be somehow a relative of aversion. It's concerned with someone or something we want to get rid of, we dislike, we'd rather not have around. Maybe this person is after my wife, this person after my husband. I'm jealous. I wish this person would disappear, not exist out of the universe. Aversive. Envy seems more related to desire for to something someone experiences or possesses or owns which I would like to have rather than that person. This person is rich and beautiful and I'm craving envying her, his wealth or beauty. Jealousy and envy both can be defined as a mind state or emotion that is unable to bear others' happiness, others' good fortune. It mostly refers to possessions, others' possessions, to having luck, good fortune, and interpersonal relationships. And they can create tremendous mental and emotional turmoil. And not only does it cause immediate unhappiness in one's own mind, it also diminishes one's own good and pleasant situations and relationships and possessions. In many ways, as we know, it's hell. by Rumi. Inside the great mystery that is, we don't really own anything. What is this competition we feel then before we go one at a time through the same gate? When jealousy and envy are absent in our mind, and also the other four negative tendencies are inactive. Then the positive, wholesome, innate qualities of the mind are shining through. Sympathetic joy, mudita, 
and also respect, appreciation and gratefulness. Just as love and metta and compassion and equanimity, sympathetic joy when practiced as concentration, concentrative absorption, it is one of the so-called Brahma-viharas, the abodes of Brahma, the highest celestial beings. These mind states, which are said to be incredibly powerful and beautiful, are also called illimitables because their object is the infinite or unlimited number of living beings. And sympathetic joy or mudita is not mere sympathy, but appreciative joy. So its main characteristic is happy acquiescence in other success, other prosperity and good qualities. It's a congratulatory attitude expressing joy for others. And I think if we congratulate someone and we really mean it, genuine, there's that sense of, you know, being happy that whatever it is happens to that person. Sympathetic joy, just like love, metta, comes out of the recognition and the experience of the interrelatedness and the connectedness of life. And it's the natural and spontaneous manifestation of this insight, of this experience. Yet, it can also be practiced, just like we can practice metta or karuna, compassion. A kind of exercise of over and over regrouping our habits and tendencies in that respect. Or we could say also as the development of wholesome qualities that weaken negativities as we saw the other night when I was talking about emotions. To begin with, it might be perhaps easier for us to rejoice in the qualities of great saints. Maybe rejoicing in the qualities of a Buddha, or Christ, or the Divine Mother, or examples that are closer to us. People are still alive. Maybe Mother Teresa of Kolkata, or the Dalai Lama, for some. Rejoicing their wisdom, in their kindness, in their deep connectedness. And we need to practice it, similarly, similar to the way we practice metta. Doing it over and over again, kind of somewhat systematically. Then we can rejoice in the happiness, the well-being, and the qualities 
of people we care. We care for, we love. Maybe our children, or our partners, our parents, our friends. In doing this, I think, again, it's helpful to be very specific. Take somebody. Not doing it sort of generalizing all beings. Or taking people, thinking of them, thinking of qualities they have that we can appreciate and rejoice in that. It gets rather interesting with difficult people. People, there's no difficult people, people we find difficult. Then, then the question is, am I willing to acknowledge the positive qualities even of a person I find unpleasant, I find difficult, even of my enemy? Someone who has really disappointed me, someone who has let me down. Or even with people who in their lives have caused a lot of pain and suffering. Perhaps even have caused war, torture, whatever. Can we see anything good about them? Or it's interesting with people who we just find the drag over and over again. You know, the people we visualize in our metta meditation on retreat, and then we start to feel really good. But next time we meet them, they do the same thing again, and they do it again, and it's like (laughs) back to square one. Again, it's good to play with concrete examples. Maybe a more general example for this would be someone like Stalin, who was responsible for incredible amounts of suffering for all kinds, including mass deportation of entire peoples, concentration camps, torture, genocide. He's supposed to have taken very seriously some of the quite lofty communist ideals, such as just distribution of property and wealth. He's been living in a two-bedroom apartment throughout his entire life. And supposedly, he was otherwise quite modest too in his material demands and needs. Can we appreciate that? Can we appreciate that without implying that we agree with all the other horrible things he did? But is it possible to see a good positive side in any being? It gets most interesting when we begin to appreciate and rejoice in ourselves and our own vast positive qualities. And perhaps some of us might first discover a certain lack of genuine, adequate self-respect and self-esteem as soon as we try to do that. And then we might also see how this lack of self-appreciation undermines one's capacity for sympathetic joy. And I think that with many of us Westerners, vast majority. This is a quite 
deep-rooted problem or disease. This inability to truly, really accept oneself, this constant inner self-judgment and self-criticism and lack of appreciation for oneself. At a conference with the Dalai Lama, I was together with Westerners, apparently the conversation touched on this issue, and uh, people told me he found it very difficult to even imagine that human beings can firmly believe that they're basically unworthy. And he'd sort of go around and ask people, do you feel like that? And people would say, yeah, I know what they're talking about. And they just couldn't get it, apparently. <laughs> This basic attitude often causes within us envy and jealousy and the competitiveness that seems so marked in our society. And then in a somehow reversed sense, it also often creates arrogance and the judging and condemning of others, along with the inability to appreciate others. And somehow this seems to be a manifestation of the constant need to try to compensate that basic feeling of inadequacy. If I'm worthless, I need to sort of put everybody enough down that I sort of feel quite all right again, or sort of reasonably okay. And it's pretty sad. It's a very unfortunate solution which over and over produces the opposite effect of the effect we hope for. And that's why it's so incredibly important that we learn to recognize and to acknowledge and to appreciate and to rejoice in our good qualities. And I think here, especially, we need to be specific not just say, yeah, yeah, I have good sights, you know, sometimes. But really, think of them and value those qualities in us. I sat in retreat for a couple of months last fall, and uh, I decided to do some meditation on sympathetic joy. And I also didn't find it so easy to start with at first, so I decided to just write down whatever came in my mind in those terms. Here's a small part of this, just to give you a practical example. I rejoice in the fact that I'm doing this retreat. I rejoice in those moments when the heart opens with great compassion for the suffering beings. I rejoice, in those, I rejoice in those moments at dawn and at dusk, standing at the front gate, blessing the land and all beings, chanting the great mantra. I rejoice in the boundless compassion of the awakened ones, the Buddhas. I'm grateful that Dechen Chirling, that's the name of that retreat house, has been built and is at people's disposition. I'm grateful for Kensi Rinpoche's protection and blessing over the place 
and over all those who practice here. I rejoice in Clark and Lottie's having built the house and in the perfection and beauty they put into it. I rejoice in my efforts and interest in looking into the mind's nature over and over again. I rejoice in those moments of openness, of clarity and of insight. I rejoice in those moments of renunciation and deep revulsion towards samsara. And I rejoice in sharing all the positive qualities and energies that got touched and awakened practicing here. Sharing them with all my teachers, with my parents, with my wife, with Clark, Clark and the kids, the people who built the house, with my friends, follows a long list of names with all those who ever attended a talk, a retreat or a workshop with me with all human beings and with all the animals here on this land the spiders, the flies and the moths the centipedes and the rainworms the deer, the wild turkeys, the woodchucks the owls, the buzzards, the crows, the falcons and the herons and the Canadian wild geese on their way south, the garden snake and the beaver down at the pond, the lonesome cat, the dogs, and the cows and bulls, and all the beings unseen, and especially the little guys inside the firewood that got burned in the stoves to keep me warm. I share with the earth, the grass, the trees, and the stars, and I rejoice in their being and their being here with me. Sometimes it's helpful to just write or make lists of your qualities or of things you've just done or or you're doing that is wholesome. And it doesn't matter whether it's small or big. They're all equally meaningful One moment of interest, one moment of awareness is tremendously meaningful. At least we should be able to say like Ashley Brilliant does, I may not be perfect, but parts of me are excellent. (laughs) Feeling appreciated worthy and valued within will also increasingly be able to see and appreciate the good qualities of others and value their positive actions. And in such a way, sympathetic joy can become one of the most effortless and joyful and pleasant and yet effective practices possible That's what we've always been looking for, isn't it? This is by Rumi on joy. God's joy moves from unmarked box to unmarked box, from cell to cell, as rainwater down into flower bed, as roses up from ground, Now it looks like a plate of rice and fish. Now a cliff covered with wines. Now a horse being saddled. His joy 
hides within these until one day it cracks them open. Sympathetic joy is closely related to appreciation and to gratefulness. Here's a quote by Brother David Steinle Rust. Ordinary happiness depends on happenstance, coincidence, while joy is that extraordinary happiness that is independent of what happens to us. Good luck can make us happy, but it cannot give us lasting joy. The root of joy is gratefulness. And we tend to misunderstand the link between joy and gratefulness. We notice that joyful people are grateful, and we suppose that they're grateful for their joy. But the reverse is true. Their joy springs from gratefulness. If one has all the good luck in the world but takes it for granted, it will not give one joy. Yet even bad luck will give joy to those who manage to be grateful for it. So we hold the key to lasting happiness in our own hands. For it is not joy that makes us grateful, it is gratitude that makes us joyful. And all too often we do think, take things for granted, isn't it? And then doing that we miss, we forget the mystery of life. We just think of the fact that we hear. Uh, we hear this incredible thing happens and we have never learned it. And none of us has a clue how it happens and, and there's all the scientific explanations, and it doesn't explain a thing. It's so mysterious. Taking things for granted is an example. There's John, a priest, and his friend David. They're taking a walk in the beautiful snow-covered countryside. And John says, just look how wonderfully God caused the lake to freeze. And David says, no wonder in winter. <laughs> Taking things for granted, we miss the miracle. For me personally, a very central aspect of gratefulness is the gratefulness to the Dharma, the teaching, the practice. Gratefulness for the fact that things are the way they are, that teachings are available, there's a path, and that, in fact, direct access to understanding, to freedom, is really possible. Gratefulness for the Dharma, and especially for those who have explored it deeply and then passed it on, the Buddha and all the teachers, know those who support us with the Dharma and those who support us in any way possible the Sangha 
And in this way, perhaps, gratefulness isn't very far away from devotion. Devotion together with insight, with wisdom, is one of the most direct gateway to freedom. I'd like to look at conceit, arrogance, pride, haughtiness, and the positive qualities that appear in their absence. Conceit is a very troublesome factor of mind, and it's not very much talked about. And I think it often escapes our awareness. Because of ignorance and not understanding, we believe somehow to perceive an inherent solid I, apparently independent central unit within that constant changing flow of moment-to-moment experience. The mind then identifies with, condenses somehow around and grasp this sense of self, either as a blown-up, superior self, or the reverse, a strongly shrunk, inferior self. And in this way, a seeming separation appears, or I could say a sense of separation, a sense of being different, of alienation, and that in turn, easily creates, again, all kinds of trouble. Respectlessness, arrogance, creates strain and difficulties in our relationships, mostly for oneself, of course. It creates envy towards superiors, or, or those we see as being superior and better off. There's an ongoing sense of competition towards those one sees as equals. It makes us arrogant towards those seen as inferior in some way or other. And this creates a tight and hostile atmosphere. We can never learn from others. The arisal development of good qualities is prevented in many ways. Conceit always creates that sense of separation, or one could say, perhaps, conceit is somehow that sense of separation. I'm better than others, better than you. I'm less, I'm worse than others, than you. Or, I'm equal with others, I'm equal with you. Even here, there's still the separation of me and you. And even being seen as equals, still, it's less of a separation, but it's still there. As long as we compare, I mean, emotionally compare, that sense of separation remains. We can perhaps see here how that conceit can be quite subtle. 
It's said that of the traditionally so-called ten factors of existence which fall off with the deepening of one's insight or enlightenment, conceit or that sense of separateness remains just about to the end, just to before full realization. And it's said that only fully liberated beings are completely free of that sense. The waves were rolling up on the beach. The deep roar accompanied their constant motion, their dance. They smashed against the steep cliffs. One day, a very huge old wave came rolling in. It came from very far. A small, young wave pushed its way next to it and asked, Have you ever heard of the ocean? Does it really exist? Yes, I've heard about the ocean, replied the big old wave, but of course I've never seen or experienced it myself. That's really what the funny thing is in that whole separation. It's really just a sense of separation, a belief, an idea, a way of (coughs) perceiving. Brother David says that the modern word for sin would be alienation, that sense of being separate. And the modern word for salvation would be belonging or connectedness. Conceit manifests in manifold ways. I'm better than those who are poorer than me or I'm better than those who are socially inferior. I'm better than those who are less pretty than me, or less educated than me, or less intelligent than me. One can feel conceited for being more advanced spiritually, isn't it? Or even for being humble or modest, which is the funniest one, I think. A rabbi one day was ill and had taken to his bed and some of his congregation came to pay their respects. The old man seemed to be drowsy so they decided they wouldn't wake him up. But nevertheless they had a chat and extolled the man's unparalleled virtues. Not since the time of Solomon, said one of them, have we had anybody as wise as our rabbi. And they nodded all. And his face. Surely not since the time of Father Abraham has there been anyone with such faith. They all nodded. Only in Moses can we find someone who has conversed so closely with God. That's true, they said. The old rabbi seemed restless, but he didn't open his eyes and so the people left. His wife came up and said, Did you hear them singing your praises? He said, Oh, yes. Well, you don't seem very pleased, anyway, about this. My modesty, he complained. Nobody mentioned my modesty. (laughs) (laughs) It's also the reverse case of conceit. In the reverse case, one feels worse than you know, this kind of people or that kind of person. It's a self 
depreciation. Also to be convinced that we have certain qualities, which in fact we don't have, is a kind of conceit. Racism is a cruel form of this disease too. Actually also nationalism, of course. And next to greed, I think it's arrogance, the arrogance of humanity which destroys our environment and the planet. So the question is, what has the power to dissolve conceit? First, of course, meditatively speaking, it's enough to turn the full light of awareness onto this mind state when it arises. Sensing, seeing it fully, embracing it clearly, not believing it, and then see what happens to it. And it'll simply dissolve by itself. As we're not feeding it anymore, and as it's impermanent, (coughs) it'll just disappear in its own time. In the wider scheme of our practice, what is it that dissolves conceit? Conceit implies solidification, a kind of process of crystallization. Therefore, if conceit is a solidification syndrome, then the experience and recognition of change and of impermanence, of the flow, must be what prevents this encrustment. One more reason why insight into impermanence is so important. Conceit implies a sense of separation, of being better, worse, or just different. Therefore, sensing and seeing and experiencing more often, more clearly, the mutual dependency, the dense interwovenness, interrelatedness of all life, also will undermine the foundations for conceit and instead connectedness takes place. That's why reflection and contemplation on interdependence and mutual relatedness with all beings, with all things, with the air, the earth, water, food, is so helpful, so essential. What's a meta? very powerful there, this area. Conceit implies grasping at the seemingly independent entity, I, me, mine. Martin Buber says, in those who are full of themselves, there's no room for God. Therefore, if we see and experience more often and more clearly the substanceless, substanceless and the dependent arising and disappearing of all inner processes and perceptions. Then a solid sense of self, of I, is seen through. And again, conceit has no more basis. Instead, there's in the spaciousness. And that's why insight and wisdom are so central. Vipassana is so central. Then, instead of conceit, pride, and arrogance, we find connectedness, simplicity, humility, 
and reference for life. This is Brother David Steinrust. Today, humility is not the popular virtue, but only because it is misunderstood. Many think that humility is a pious lie committed by people who claim to be worse than they know themselves to be, so that they can secretly pride themselves in being so humble. In truth, however, to be humble means simply to be earthy. The word humble is related to humus, the vegetable mold of topsoil. It is also related to human and humor. If we accept and embrace the earthiness of our human condition, and a bit of humor helps, we shall find ourselves doing so with humble pride. In our best moments, humility is simply pride that is too grateful to look down at anyone. So pride can actually be positive, but then it rests within a sense of connectedness with being. It implies or contains appreciation and respect for oneself as an integral part of life. Then it's a very positive dynamic energy. In the Tibetan Vajrayana, there's a practice where one visualizes and sees oneself as an enlightened Buddha. And they say that the central part in that is what they call taking the pride of being the Buddha. It's a conviction that one is this enlightened being. Not in a sort of conceited way, but just that real strength behind trusting that really in our basic being we are whole, we are complete, we are all good. This, of course, is different from announcing to the world you know, that one is an enlightened person. Quite some of that these days, but there I'd rather be suspicious. I mean, some of the greatest teachers that I've seen and known, unless they're very old, and just because they're 85 or something, there is no one who's not their student. They always have teachers, and at a certain age, they start to teach each other, and they bow and prostrate to each other, like I've seen my own Tibetan teacher, who's, you know, done incredible amounts of practice that I'll talk about the other evening. And uh, every so often, other teachers came to visit, and he was again among us, you know, doing the prostrations and listening, the teachings, and doing his meditation. And it's very inspiring, I think, important aspect of humility. And yet, uh, kind of positive pride. When we rest in connectedness and recognize the transparency of all independent self-existence, the emptiness or absence of 
anything that exists in itself, independent from everything else, then we don't need to compare and judge so much anymore. And all the delusion of separateness starts to disappear. And to close again with Martin Buber, whenever humans feel themselves to be above others or before others, then they have boundaries. And God cannot pour his holiness into them because God is without boundaries. But whenever humans rest in themselves as in nothingness, then they are not limited by otherness and are boundless. And God pours his glory into them. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.